wherever wherever these leaders come to power, they're always talking about mental and emotional uplift. They're talking about the renewal of the spirit. They're not just talking about, yes, they're talking about capitalist growth, they're talking about uh, uh, saving the nation from its enemies, yada, yada, but crucially, they're talking to um, very, very intensely depressed people um, uh, and offering um, them a cure in the form of whatever you're going through, you're much, much better than this group of people. And so I think that that uh, is a compensation that is much more potent than anything that's offered by the neoliberal happiness industry. Um, and it's much more, and it's, by the way, it's, uh, I think I have to stress in concluding that this is a material interest. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to Savage Live, where we attempt to thoughtful conversations in the project of understanding the world and turning it upside down. I'm your host, Annie Olaloku Tariba. You'll hear in a moment from my co-host, Barnaby Rain. Um, Savage Live is brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal of revolutionary arts and letters. Barnaby and I are very excited to join the editorial board of Savage this month. Salvage 10 is being finalized now with poetry and art and essays on Palestine and the five-year retrospective on Brexit, one that forms our launch pad tonight. Tonight we discuss American fascism with two guests from either side of the Atlantic. Richard Seymour is among the, fir- uh, the finest writers on the British left, not the first. His <laughs> essays you can read in Salvage, the London Review of Books and elsewhere. In his range of books, from the liberal defense of murder to the twittering machine, names a useful range to understand his latest subject for an essay in the upcoming issue of Salvage on the question of fascism in the United States. Nikhil Pal Singh is a professor at New York University and a brilliant critic of forms of political myopia on both the right and the left, as well as a chronicler of racial reaction and racial radicalism, as in his books, Black is a Country and uh, Race and America's Long War. First, some words from us. What's in a word? Words don't just denote and describe phenomena. Words communicate, Wittgenstein taught us in Austin, an illocutionary force intended by a speaker or writer. So what's the force intended by calling someone or something fascist? The obvious answers are quite revealing. On a moral arc assumed across the West and even more broadly, Nazism represents absolute evil, and fascism means Nazism or something approaching it. Hence the constant appeal of fascism as a label to discredit opponents. Right-wingers claim that a stern left represents the new fascism, but the people they invade are Islamo-fascists. And after 1945, left-wingers repeatedly saw echoes of fascism in empire, in the police, in plenty of conservative politicians. Those echoes were often so real as to be tangible, the same henchmen. The irony is that the charge of fascism today represents a claim about a return to an abominable buried chapter, the exceptional 1930s now suddenly flaring up again. But in fact, the diagnosis of fascism's afterlives and mutations has been constant since then. There never was such a rupture. 
from its endurance in Spain and Portugal and Greece to its shadows in the post-war West German state to its exporting from Europe to South America and Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. The shot in the charge, he's a fascist, implies a particular view of fascism as a singular black mark before a democratic transformation. But that is a view all four of us today want to challenge. From such stock anti-totalitarians as Timothy Snyder and Anne Applebaum, calling Trumpism fascism meant isolating it, rescuing the image of normal bourgeois democratic politics. CNN talked of concentration camps while Trump was president and immigration detention facilities once Biden took over the ages. The question for our event today and for a global left facing authoritarian reaction from Brazil to India is what happens when we stop thinking of fascism as a diagnosis of the exception? Can the word be used differently? Or is it just too connected now to this Eurocentric liberalism of ruptures and coups and fringe madness? Similarly, the force involved in calling something fascist is heavily about the kinds of oppositional politics that can then be demanded as appropriately anti-fascist. Popular frontism dies hard. The emergency alarm of fascism is usually a call to assemble as broad a resistance as possible, allying with all and sundry. But a claim about fascism is also the emergency against which Antifa calls for setting aside nicety. Anti-fascism could look like the common term's third period, an insistence that only properly transformative socialist politics can meet the threat and all the moderates are abetting it. That might be a fitting way to speak of the relationship between austerity and arrogance from liberals. And politics looks not forward, but back over its shoulder as it speaks. The work of analysing our present is sometimes hindered by our fixation with analogies from the past. Even as Stalin consolidated his power, Bolshevik leaders were reading of revolutionary France, anxious that Trotsky would be their Napoleon. So the firmament of 1930s Europe created a distinctive form of right-wing politics. The tenuousness of parliamentary democracy, the terrifying spectre of Bolshevism, the post-1918 violent legacy, the inequalities and the training grounds of colonial power, the romantic nationalism of the founders' gap and the long crisis of liberal rationalism after the failure of 1848, the novel rise of the bureaucratic state. These things all made possible an optimistic modernism of centralizing authoritarian imperial power. At once, Mussolini's cult of youth and Franco's crusade to defend tradition and the church from a rival socialist modernity. Clearly, our conditions are not identical, though in different parts of the world today, different elements of this old synthesis still live. Our goal tonight is not to pick apart parallels or identify differences, but still in that moment as our ground zero. Our goal is to ask what more general patterns of mass and state violence in the defense of social domination were iterated in particular ways by classic fascism. Might we then recover the anti-colonial and the new left bid to give more general, politically powerful content to the charge of fascism by doing precisely the thing that liberal anti-fascists know, asking what forms of thought and life may be atrocities of the 1930s and 1940s possible, what parents Hitler had, and then asking what was vanquished in 1945 and what was not in this planet still saturated with degradation and murder. Settle your quarrels, come together and understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here, that people are already dying who could be saved, that generations more will live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your, your humanity and your love in revolution. Those are the words of George Jackson, a black revolutionary and political prisoner. His analysis of a, distinctly, a distinctively American fascism 
which emerged specifically from the liberal democratic form, seems strangely absent in the pages of the New York Review of Books as a center positions itself as savior. So when do we name the horror? Whisper it all you want and with all the trepidation befitting of an evil which should have been resigned to museums, but the word is on everyone's lips and its ghost is in the hold. It is bursting at the seams and gnawing at the empty barricades. For four years, Trump walked us through the valley of death and once again, we're told, the centre has saved us. Fascism was already here and how would it announce its arrival? A speech, a torture, a massacre, a tweet? As continuity underscores the day-to-day -day slog of neoliberal democracy, we scramble to name new horrors and conjure the ghost of old. Everything is changing and yet everything is the same. And what of the resistance? We name horrors in order that we prepare ourselves for struggle or a death, to know if it is time or if it is too late. What does it mean that we are still waiting to act, to stop it in its tracks before it overwhelms us? How do we confront a fascism that happened as an and is happening? We start that project with Richard Seymour's essay in the next issue of Salvage, currently under preparation for subscribers. Tell us about that essay, and in particular, Richard, you write that the best question for our moment is not, is this, fascism, uh, is this fascism, but is it fascization, a process? Why the distinction? That's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, I think it's important to say that the reason why people are talking about fascism is precisely because there is a sense that there's something unique and distinctive about Trump and not just Trump, obviously Modi, Bolsonaro, et cetera, and the kinds of politics they represent. In other words, this isn't, uh, you know, your grandfather's Republican Party. This isn't the traditional mainstream conservative right, at least as we've known it since the Second World War. That's the idea anyway. So we need somehow to relate to that sentiment that there's something different happening here, uh, while at the same time linking um, this um, experience back to the quotidian, pervasive realities of racial capitalism today. So what's the essay about? Um, I think, first of all, it is an attempt to engage with the question of whether uh, it's appropriate to speak about fascism in relation to Trump and uh, particularly his grassroots um, and Modi and Bolsonaro and, uh, say, Jobbik in Hungary, whether there's a process going on here that involves fascism at some in some way. And I think one of the ways to approach this is to uh, take the approach that Arthur Rosenberg did. And Rosenberg uh, was a dissident Communist Party member in Germany. Um, he, uh, was an he was attempting to analyze how Hitler and the National Socialists had taken power. And in his analysis, he uh, broke with some of the sort of mainstream forms of analysis, specifically uh, the sort of Stalinist line that fascism was the dictatorship of a particular sector of monopoly capital. Um, obviously, that wasn't sufficient. There was something else going on, something that involved the masses. And so Rosenberg ended up talking about the mass preliminaries, the mass preconditions for fascism. Of course, he spoke about uh, capitalism. Um, he talked about he talked about uh, the predicates of Volkish nationalism, but he was particularly interested in how masses of people uh, could be so ready, so available uh, for fascism. And that's the thing that I think we want to take on board for this. Uh, it's not just a question of, you know, whether, you know, Timothy Schneider 
pardon me, Timothy Snyder, um, Anne Altenbaum, and people like that were uh, speaking as if Trump was going to take office and from there take power. In other words, he was going to colonize the state with his uh, allies. Uh, he was going to declare a state of emergency. He was going to shut down the institutions of deliberative or representative democracy, shut down civil society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, one of the things we know about Trump is that he didn't do very much at all policy-wise. I mean, he did a few things that were very, very harmful, but uh, nothing like what even his limited agenda uh, suggested he would uh, get up to. Um, that he was a rather indolent president, um, that insofar as his agenda was uh, carried out, it was the parts of the agenda that were perfectly commensurate with the Republican Party's establishment and its mainstream. So obviously, we're not going to get very far talking about fascism in that connection. Um, nonetheless, it would be worth asking, uh, for example, given that Trump was encircled within the state, given that he had the opposition of the CIA, given that he had the opposition of MSNBC and CNN, given that the Senate and Congress were against him, at least as far as his white nationalist agenda went, um, and given that uh, there were people leaking against him from day one, um, and that he faced a, an FBI investigation and uh, attempts to um, uh, impeach him, uh, two attempts, it seems unlikely that he would be able, even if he wished to, to implement the kind of matured fascist agenda, even if he had that at his disposal. So it would be far more um, appropriate to speak about the forms, if we're going to talk about fascism in this connection, the forms of, let us say, inchoate or incipient fascism um, that exist within US society and which allowed Trump to take power uh, by, if you like, appealing uh, to uh, those forms of uh, incipient fascism that are already there. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, the obvious white nationalist messaging, the appeals to America first, the coddling of neo-Nazis, um, the uh, sort of embrace of Blue Lives Matter, particularly um, violent uh, racist current within policing. Um, within the sort of repressive state apparatuses. Um, uh, his uh, barely uh, concealed anti-Semitic messaging. Um, all of these sorts of tendencies um, were suggestive of somebody who was leveraging a latent fascism um, and trying to mobilize public opinion along a, a sort of friend-enemy distinction wherein, of course, the, the enemy was uh, suitably nebulous and uh, Hydra-headed, um, it could be Muslims, it could be Mexicans, whom he said were rapists and murderers, it could be, um, uh, later on it turned out that it was the, um, he was promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory that there were Satan-worshipping communist child molesters uh, and uh, child sex traffickers working in Hollywood and in centers of American political power. In other words, I think if you were to boil all this down, this conspiratorial um, and theologically expected worldview um, really boils down to the idea that there's a satanic antichrist pulling the strings somewhere and that uh, Donald J. Trump was going to lead the resistance of the virtuous against it. Um, and so it wasn't only uh, resistance intellectuals who 
were wrapped up in a fantasy of uh, a totalitarian dystopian nightmare about to befall them. This um, seems to be ubiquitous in American society, um, this apocalypticism. So um, I think that if we're talking about um, fascism, we're talking about something that is uh, much less concentrated, centralized, um, and institutionalized than we would expect if we were looking at, say, the 1930s, or if we were expecting this to be 1930s cosplay, you know, with um, paramilitaries and, uh, you know, the party state um, marching in the streets. And the, the uh, a difference, um, though, of Hello, everyone. I'm very, I'm very sorry about my delay that seems to be happening. Um, we're having this conversation. That's no worries. Um, I can step in just until, oh, Barnaby's back. Hi, everyone. I'm really, really sorry about my connection issues today. Um, um, I hope can, can you all hear me on the on the on the event? Yeah. Um, uh, we're having this conversation after the defeat of Trump um, electorally, and I wanted to ask Nikhil, who raised in this, in a discussion we had earlier, um, the strangeness of the conversation moving apparently seamlessly in American politics from fascism to inflation, um, and that's sort of like uh, a short electoral cycle analysis where our analysis of what are surely longer term trajectories um, is, is beholden to the, to the short-term uh, immediate vagaries of losing uh, an election in one year uh, or losing by a few votes the next year. Um, what's the importance of talking about now with Joe Biden and not Donald Trump? Um, thank you. Um, well, it's a perplexing issue, and I think the way you've, you've set it up and um, by by framing the kind of the fact that we have never not been talking about fascism really since World War II, that the sort of the, the defeat of fascism is this is is central to the narrative of of liberal institutional politics, um, both at national within the West at the national scale and also at the global scale. Um, so, so the whole idea of a rules-based international order, the whole idea of a kind of liberal nationalist uh, basis for inclusive citizenship, the idea that the trajectory of American democracy after World War II is toward the kind of overcoming of white supremacy and its kind of bastions, all of these are set in motion by the struggle against fascism during World War II. So it's a very profound and powerful story um, that is at the heart of kind of American political culture. Um, you, you could call it an anti-fascist story, not in the sense of, of kind of leftist anti-fascism, but in the sense of liberal anti-fascism, right? Um, and of course, we know that within that, there were tremendous accommodations of the far right uh, from, from fascist client states to right-wing death squads and paramilitaries to uh, the smuggling in of Nazi scientists to the um, to the accommodations with uh, Southern white supremacists and far-right elements that were kind of constantly being at least um, at least kept within the possibilities of a wider right-wing politics. But that politics is on the defensive in the United States after World War II. 
Um, and really, it doesn't achieve any kind of breakthrough until Ronald Reagan, right? And you could say that, that Ronald Reagan, who is now thought of as a kind of saintly conservative centrist, um, but when he was elected, really was a representative of the far right, of the Goldwater right, um, of the right that was uh, revanchist um, in terms of race politics, that was militantly anti-communist. So drawing on the traditions of, of kind of rollback, um, the kind of far more militaristic view of kind of how to approach the world order. Um, now, we, we don't want to get into a long discussion of, the, of Reaganism, you know, and what it actually meant and how Reagan actually governed. But Reagan achieved a kind of center-right hegemony in the United States um, by putting some of those elements into play but by not act actually fulfilling them, not actually delivering on them in some sense, right? Um, so one of the questions I have for, for Richard really is, you know, when we think about Trump, I mean, Richard said that we're talking about Trump today because there's something unique and distinctive about Trump and about the break that Trump represents. But I've been sort of a little bit more on the kind of continuity side of the argument, which is to say that there's, there's a continuity in the post-war American right uh, there's a continuity that connects, say, Reaganism and Trumpism. And part, part of what has changed is the balance of forces and the kind of structural predicates um, of the kind of governing project in the United States. So what, what Richard in his essay talks about in terms of a kind of steady hegemonic decomposition. So the right can't actually organize a project in the United States right now, say in the way in which Ronald Reagan did, or even in the way in which George W. Bush did. Uh, and when you think of the projects that Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush organized, I'll, I'll give them two names. Reagan organized mass incarceration with, within the help of the, of the Democrats, and George Bush organized the global war on terror. Now, you could say that both of those projects in different ways uh, were, were failed projects. But in my lifetime, those are the greatest examples of, of mass state violence that we have experienced in, in, in the, inside the United States and in the United States in its relationship to the world. Trump accomplished nothing even remotely close to that, right? So, so then there's this other odd kind of paradox of thinking of Trump as a kind of, as a kind of acceleration of far-right politics and yet an acceleration of far-right politics that's actually capable of doing much, much less, right? And so you started your question, Barnaby, with the fact of Trump's electoral defeat and how we've so quickly switched now to a conversation about how, how the sort of now retrofitted resilient center is going to sort of deliver on something that can keep that specter of the far-right at bay. Um, and that can kind of, as Biden said at the G7 or at NATO, I guess it was, bring America back. Right. And none of us really believe that America is coming back because the structural requisites for liberal governance also don't exist anymore. Um, and those structural requisites, for, from my viewpoint, really are, are involve a kind of promise of growth and mobility um, and ability for 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 the governing party to really deliver on some kind of future. Right. Uh, and it's that sense that the future has been lost. Right, that was so central to the emergence of Trump, right? So what does it mean then in this moment to think about fascism when you have less political violence, say, than came before, 
when you don't really have a mass movement, I'm putting it starkly because I agree with Richard that there's something going on here that inchoate fascism is a very interesting way to talk about it. But we have less political violence, arguably. Um, we have, we do not have a mass movement on the right. Um, we don't have a claim to futurity or utopia coming from the right. And we don't have a revolutionary challenge to the bourgeois order. We have a kind of restoration of a certain kind of bourgeois politics, um, now more influenced by the left. So the conversation has now flipped very quickly in the United States. We're not talking much about fascism. There is a conversation about what the Republican Party is doing and how we should interpret what they're doing uh, and how we should interpret it in relationship to fascism. But, I, but I'm curious um, how, how Richard responds to, to that because, because it, it, it does seem to me sometimes that um, it's, it's tough to parse this, right? It's, it's tough to tell how, what it means to call it in Kuwait, you know, which is to say, how strong is it? Um, how um, how resilient will that tendency be, um, and 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 how much should we kind of be concerned about it? So those would be kind of my my opening. That would be my opening sort of gambit here. Well, if I can come back on that, because I think those um, are really, I think that's a really well phrased challenge. Um, and there's a lot of areas that I agree with uh, what Nikhil's just said on. In particular, if you if you go back to Reagan, it's fascinating because although you're absolutely right, I mean he's been um, uh, deified uh, by uh, the reputation makers uh, and turned into a saint of moderation. Um, but if you look at how he campaigned in 1980, uh, it was very much leveraging um, the themes. Uh, and uh, political energies of uh, uh, revanchist segregationists and taking up the uh, agenda of what were called uh, pragmatic segregationists, those who didn't feel that they could get away with um, de jure um, segregation any longer, but felt that they could shift the agenda of segregation onto a number of uh, related uh, racially um, loaded issues like welfare, for example. I mean, you can find that stuff beginning in the South in the 1960s, all that moralized discourse about welfare. Um, and then, of course, the criminal justice agenda, the anti-drugs agenda, all of this sort of stuff. So um, I think the that way of talking about um, the assimilation uh, of fascistic elements of, you could even say, inchoate fascism um, into a, a broader hegemonic strategy um, which, you know, obviously it goes to demonstrate, both uh, Reagan and Bush go to demonstrate that it's wrong to think of hegemony as a practice purely in terms of consciousness formation, in terms of securing consensus, because the other side of consensus almost invariably is well-targeted violence against various outgroups and uh, the so-called underclass and so on. So um, I think that it's correct then to say that what has happened is that the right has been unable to continue its long-standing practice of assimilating uh, in a form of right-wing transformismo uh, those forms of uh, inchoate fascism into a, a broader uh, center-right project. Mm -hmm. 
I think what I'm interested in uh, with regard to Trump um, is a number of things. First, I think it is just the case that uh, he crossed a number of lines in ideological terms um, and in political terms. Perhaps a part of the establishment's distaste for him is the fact that he didn't come from within um, you know, the Republican Party establishment. He funded himself to a large extent. He didn't rely on the um, corporate funding cartels. Um, uh, he also broke with certain standards of bourgeois civility, which is not a small thing, I think. Um, I think it's it's relevant here. Um, just how it's relevant, I'll, I'll try to come back to. But I think more important is that he had a relationship to the uh, mobilized base, which is, you know, let's be clear about this, it's not a mass base. Um, it's certainly nowhere near as the largest the base for Black Lives Matter in recent years. But it's nor is it an insignificant base in terms of um, the growth of militias, uh, which, um, according to some data, has doubled in scale since 2008. So you've got 200 militias. I mean, what this actually means in practice is very hard to say. But we know that uh, when Black Lives Matter was mobilizing on the streets, very much with the support of the Trump administration, militias were on the streets and various sort of disorganized armed vigilantes pointing their guns at Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, killing people in some cases. There was a surge in vehicular assaults. You can then link this back to a series of other trends. And I think, again, these are trends of disintegration of anomie. Um, for example, the rise in lone wolf violence, um, which uh, has been soaring. I mean, if you look at um, the S-curve of diffusion, uh, whenever a pattern or a trend is taking off, um, at this point, you would say that lone wolf violence has been taking off, and it's the beginning of a takeoff period. You would say that um, uh, a series of other things like mass shootings, um, which are not directly political, but often uh, overlap with far-right political agendas, resentment of women, uh, resentment of black people, and so on, um, that they're taking off at roughly a similar time, even as other forms of criminal violence have been falling up until 2020, actually. You know, um, falling for a long, long time. Now, this is causally complicated. It's a, it's a very difficult area to parse, I admit, because, of course, there are, you know, uh, violent crime is overdetermined in terms of its causes. But just to note that these trends are happening and that they uh, represent the an attempt to um, organize in the absence of organization. Um, so, for example, lone wolf fascism is very much uh, convoked within these anti-social uh, social forums, uh, these uh, troll farms, not troll farms, but uh, gaming forums and uh, the rest of them where essentially people behave to one another in almost the opposite way that you would expect to behave around people that you were genuinely socializing with. Um, they're consistently cruel and horrible to one another. Um, they are anons, so they don't have identities. Um, but it's in these fora that they're able to forge some kind of uh, fascistic contagion uh, using the Lone Wolf Manifesto, generally speaking, as the medium for a contagion. So, you know, Breivik's uh, cut and paste manifesto, which was largely culled from the works of the English far right, of the US libertarian right, so-called, and so on, uh, the Islamophobia industry, all of that put together and turned into uh, a manifesto. And as Breivik put it, his massacre 
was the um, was the marketing strategy for the manifesto. This is what he said, um, and uh, so again and again, there's uh, there's this pattern wherein violence uh, has been used as an attempt to stimulate um, the uh, in part the ideological framework, the ideological radicalization through which some form of fascistic. Uh, proto-fascistic organization could begin to take place. And the extraordinary thing about this, I think, is that um, where you've seen these trends, on the one hand, the growth of militias, the growth of lone wolf fascists, mass murderers of various kinds, um, and then, of course, the growth of millenarian cults. I mean, QAnon just happens to be the most well-known, and it became very prominent, partly because the Trump administration embraced it. Um, When you see what's happening there, For some reason, uh, I think in the past, association with this sort of uh, politics would have been, um, uh, I I certainly think it would have been the death knell for any presidential campaign. Um, I think it would have been uh, very, um, it, it would not have led to more political success. Whereas I think what we've seen over the last four years, and probably, you know, in a process going on longer than that, is the uh, destigmatization of the far right, um, of the overt far right, the destigmatization of certain far right tropes and ideas and thematics, um, and uh, the fact that sometimes, uh, or increasingly, um, these sort of uh, micro-fascisms, if you like, uh, seem to be actually rendering these campaigns more popular. So, for example, who would have thought that Trump, despite losing, would add, um, after everything that's happened, 10 million votes to his base? And these votes being picked up, you know, not as is increasingly the, uh, you know, the stereotype, or, or as was the stereotype we were given to expect, among older, uneducated, working-class white men. I mean, I don't know how, how good that trope, that explanatory framework ever was, but um, that certainly didn't hold up in 2020. In 2020, although the vote for Trump was disproportionately white, as it always is for the Republicans, um, it uh, ate into the Latino vote, it ate into the Muslim vote, uh, it uh, increased its share of um, votes among black people. Uh, again, very small minority there, but still uh, increased its share of the vote, suggesting that there's something beyond whiteness, um, uh, you know, as uh, as the sort of mobilizing basis for any kind of incipient or incoate fascism. Um, although even that's, of course, complicated because there are various ways in which one can make a big for whiteness. Um so I think um, adding 10 million votes to his total, given everything that's happened, um, given uh, the failure uh, to deliver on most of his uh, elected promises, um, but given his success in the culture wars, um, in using Twitter as his sort of main vector for any kind of unmediated, unabridged sovereignty, um, using Twitter as the means by which to stimulate popular violence, whether it's uh, inciting against Ilan Omar, uh, accusing her of supporting Al-Qaeda, accusing her of being anti-American, telling her to go back to her own crime-infested country, all that stuff, um, whether it's um, uh, you know encouraging militias to uh, turn up armed uh, at town hall meetings, 
um, as part of a general climate in which um, medical officials and local politicians are getting death threats, um, credible death threats from people uh, angered about uh, social distancing measures, believing that social distancing is communism, etc., etc., um, in a context in which um, there's a broad uh, sense of not just apocalyptic challenge, but increasingly apocalyptic challenge that is defined around the figure of communism, a totally hallucinatory figure, but nonetheless communism uh, manifested in the Biden campaign, manifested in social distancing, manifested um, in you know the most milquetoast kind of social justice warrior politics, um, manifested obviously in Jeremy Corbyn, supposedly uh, an Eastern Bloc spy, etc., etc. One could go on. But generally speaking, there's this um, apocalyptic expectancy um, uh, which characterizes all of these uh, trends that I'm talking about, and they seem to reach um, a mini crescendo in 2020 and 2021, um, or early 2021, which is suggestive to me of um, a course of popular radicalization in a dialectic um, of uh, radicalization with the Trump administration and its political outriders. Um, and that, I think, is that describes some of um, the pattern, some of the trajectory that makes the Trump administration different from others. It, he didn't exercise real um, uh, governing power at all. Uh, what he did was uh, try to and often succeed in stimulating um, the mainstreaming of far-right themes and ideas among his base and the uptake of popular violence to intimidate enemies who were um, understood in paranoid conspiratorial terms as, you know, communists. Um, and, you know, the, the ongoing strategy of culture wars in American politics, the war on critical race theory um, in Brazil, the war on so-called gender ideology, uh, wherever you go, you find a version of this sort of culture war politics being played out. And it seems to be invariably linked to forms of, um, in India, to forms of pogrom, um, uh, in, uh, you know, in the US to more diffuse forms of violence, um, in Brazil to a combination of official police violence with forms of paramilitary violence and so on. Um, that's the proce process that I'm talking about in relation to so-called fascization. And I think that's probably what's different. Thanks so much, that's so rich. Um, and it's uh, brought up quite a few questions in my mind. Um, I'll try to kind of limit my questions. But um, the first was just kind of trying to think through this timeline. And I think what's really interesting also when we think about Trump and fascism is how quickly the kind of possibility that Sanders represented seems to have fallen away. And if we kind of think about that uh, moment in the initial election, um, in the Clinton election, uh, in which on both sides of the Atlantic, we seem to get a prospect of maybe some kind of resurgence of the social democratic left, um, and so if we're thinking about fascism as framing itself in resistance to something, a misdiagnosed and deliberately so problem, um, then potentially maybe our question should be framed around what 
that resistance should be, right? Because the implication of naming something as fascism is, uh, as we kind of spoke about off the top, um, when it's bad enough to fight, right? Um, and if liberalism, liberalism or neoliberalism positions itself as the center ground, which it's not yet bad enough to fight, it's bad, it's intolerable for so many people, it's caused you know, countless deaths, um, but it's not just quite as bad as fascism. Um, maybe some of the framing of our discussion of fascism has to take into account that it is a competition of possibilities or um, thinking about what, um, what comes next. And uh, I think there was a question uh, in the chat box about um, Nazism and utopia and thinking about how it does seem to be the case that in these instances, and this kind of leads me on to the second question, um, the prospect of um, the resurgence of social democracy is also the return of politics itself. You know, um, the form of the culture wars is steeped in the fact that for so long there had been um, essentially through kind of neoliberal technocracy, the um, pushing out of politics from the polit uh, from the kind of um, social sphere, right? Um, and all of a sudden, you get the 2008 crash. It makes me think about Barnaby's article. Um, on geophobia, um, in which suddenly people are talking in political terms. And so the other side of that question is also, is it just the case that all that's gone in, in between, um, because people are framing it or understanding it in cultural terms, fascism and communism are the only languages we have available to us on a mass scale to think about the question of politics itself? Um, yeah, those are the questions I had. Do, do you want me to go? <laughs> Is it my turn? Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> um, well, there's so much on the table, you know, and I, I, I certainly want to want to first say that I think the um, the account Richard gives a kind of texture of, 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 of a kind of inchoate fascism, as he's, as he's calling it, is, is, is very, very interesting and persuasive. But I still am left with the question of um, wondering about the influence. Um, and, and, and as it relates to your question, Annie, uh, in some ways, the apocalypticism, the sort of generalized kind of foreclosure of futurity, um, what we might say as uh, the sort of um, the kind of, um, well, you've, you've written about this in, in the Twittering machine to some degree, the kind of... Uh, the generalization of antagonistic production, you know, the sort of um, the, the the sense that we live in a world where the best we can do is redistribute injustice, not not justice, but really kind of kind of level down. I mean, I mean, Annie's written about Afro pessimism. Is Afro pessimism a, a kind of incipient fascism? I mean, I, I'm being I'm being provocative by saying that, you know. But but the point I'm trying to make here is is that that the weirdness of our moment is partly what you're, you're describing um, in the sense that these different dimensions, we, we could think of the lone wolf violence or the, um, you know, the, the more the kind of stochastic terror or even taking it back to the kind of, the kind of early 2000s when you had that kind of similar kind of young men from, you know, from, from within the West, uh, it, well, it wasn't that 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 long ago that you had a big bombing in Manchester. So, 
so so the the, the these tendencies of kind these kind of disintegrative tendencies these tendencies towards um, what, what you've called or what Wendy Brown's called kind of sociophobic behavior um, um, and then the way they're channeled through our our kind of um, our kind of social media sphere um, and 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 almost give rise to again this kind of more more sort of generalized um, um, uh, you know antagonism you know um, that 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 can take the character of you know what now people have talked of say in terms of cancel culture or or, or a kind of eliminationist desire kind of an expression of eliminationist desire um, or a, or a, or a suggestion that someone else is interested in my elimination and therefore they are fascist or, or whatever they might be. I mean, these, these are tendencies that don't have a particular political valence, right? They're not only being organized on the right. Um, and, and so, so that, that sometimes brings my, brings, brings about my hesitancy. Um, when, when, um, when there's a kind of um, a challenge to think about how coherent this is. So, so not only is it inchoate, um, but it has these kind, of, um, these kind of very sort of strange and estranging dimensions to it. Um, and I mean, the Anon aspect of it is also, is, also, it, it's also significant there in the sense that one doesn't always know what one's dealing with. Right and and who and who one's dealing with, um, so so it has a kind of also um, you know a strange virtual quality. So so I, I stick by the claim I made in my, my earlier remarks that that there is a there is less political violence in this moment, tangibly, um, but there's much more rhetorical violence and there's much more um, a kind of threat inflation, um, and there is a sense. As, as, as you've put it, that um, the, that some other shoe is going to drop somewhere, right? Um, and it's going to be ca a catastrophe. But the organized forms of violence that exist, that we know, persist, and they are on a massive scale. It's the border regime, it's the police regime, and it's the military regime, right? Um, and these kinds of violence have persisted. Um, they've been uh, they've been challenged in certain ways, I think, very, very formidably now. Um, I think for the first time in, 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 in my lifetime, we have a kind of, we have a coherent critique of American militarism um, that, that, that has a little bit of a foothold in the discourse. There's obviously been a very strong uh, police and prison reform movement that has now been radicalized toward abolition politics. Um, the, the question of the politics of the border is, is a little bit in suspension. Um, I think under Trump, there was a sort of sense that, you know, as, as Barnaby put it, you know, the, the border politics were fascistic and now it's Biden's border politics and it's just kind of ordinary management. Um, uh, how, how that impasse gets broken I, is unclear to me, right? Um, so... So I, I sort of I, maybe I'm thinking sort of two kind of, in two kind of structural terms uh, for 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 the the sort of purposes of this discussion, but I keep coming back to that, right? And 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 the this the sense that 
you know, we're still we're still in some ways in the world of there is no alternative. You know, we're still in the in in the world of of you know, if the liberal center doesn't reorganize things, you know, it's going to be something much much worse. And I think that within that within that, the left is then put in this funny position because on the one hand we're being we're we're imagining a kind of fascist horizon. Um, and then we're really sort of starting to be a little bit more practical about what it means to engage in bourgeois politics again, to to eke out certain kinds of gains that have in some ways uh, eluded us in the past. And I think those gains are accruing to some degree, although I wouldn't be Pollyannish about it at all, you know, because I think that ultimately the 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 Build Back Better program, the the sort of effort to um, to sort of shift away from a kind of a, a set of neoliberal governing priorities when it comes to public spending. I mean, these are ultimately still in question. And although they seem to have progressed further under Biden than they did under Obama, it's really not clear how this is going to play out. So, so I think that there's more of a sense institutionally and socially for me that this is a moment of the left's opportunity from a position of relative weakness still. Um, and that the, the right, um, I mean, the right is, is in a kind of chaos. And, and that does not mean that there aren't very threatening features um, to the, the landscape now that is inchoately organized on the right. Very threatening features. Um, but it's hard for me to see or to, for any of us to really know how this is going to, to play out. And a lot of this is going to really depend upon how successful we are in this moment. In, um, in, in I was going to use the word restore, which is the wrong word, because I think it gives away the, the problem. I guess in transforming the kind of governing compact and, 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 and both in, both domestically and in terms of the kind of international, the levels of international cooperation that we're going to need to address climate change and 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 the, the endemic pandemic and so forth. Um, and I'm not optimistic about that. So 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 in that sense, I think um, we we're thrown back in this on this conversation talking about the right, but but the right is no better prepared to seize on this moment than we are. Is I guess where I would where I would end. I know that was a bit muddled in some ways, and I'm not sure I really answered the question that Annie posed. But perhaps it it will open up lines of our continued dialogue here. Um, I want to I want to pick up if my connection allows me because my internet's been appalling. But if I cut off, then Annie's going to um, uh, come in instead. But I want to pick up on one of the last things that Nikhil just said about the right not having answers. And much of our discussion has been in much of the discussion of um, contemporary right politics is about its pessimism, its kind of nostalgia, sentimentality. These are the, these are the normal tropes that we use when we talk about radical right today. Um, and one of the questions, as Annie mentioned in the chat, we've got some great questions we'll get to. One of the questions in the chat was about the relationship between Nazism and utopianism versus the relationship between which I take to be a provocation about a kind of difference because fascism in the 1930s um, was often very optimistic. Um, 
Uh, I mentioned Mussolini's cult of youth versus the kind of trope that Trump is being a movement of the old, though this is different from Trump, as well as the young. Um, and, um, and, and, I, and I wonder what, what you think about, um, about Trump as a, as a potential difference. You know, we're familiar on the left with talking about differences between fascism and then and now in terms of the, uh, the spectre of communist revolution and the tenuous of democracy and so on. Um, but, um, but, but is there a meaningful difference between a politics that's quite utopian perhaps, uh, about the creation of a new, uh, um, tied to a moment of modernism and inequality of futurism, a new national community, also then tied to aggressive war as a moment of, you know, think of the importance in Germany of someone like Ernst Jünger, um, uh, war as a kind of cleansing uh, moment of, um, of renewal and discovery for the young, know, brave young men who got to fight, um, and for the nation, making itself through imperial conquest. Um, Trump as isolationist uh, against the Bush dynasty. Um, so is there, uh, Nicole has taught, has written about the need the need to think about the inner and the outer war, domestic and global in, uh, in American private politics. So to both of you, I guess, Richard, first, um, I'm interested in what you think about this dominant characterization of right, the right now, and Nikhil just touched on it in closing by talking about the right perhaps not having answers. This dominant characterization of the right now is backward looking. Um, above all, that's the kind of liberal frame, and it's also frequently the left frame. Is it right? It may be. If so, is it very different from fascism as a modernist movement of renewal, uh, which fused a lot of, I mean, I mentioned Franco in my introduction, it fused a lot of heavy traditionalism, obviously, um, with, with a sense about a uh, kind of particular synthesis of uh, the traditional rediscovered from the modern dictatorial state. Um, is that optimism of the, of the early 20th century moment, uh, or indeed perhaps of Pinochet, um, you know, fighting the spectrum of communism, but also uh, bringing in the Chicago boys to transform the country with a particular vision of modernity. Is that different from a right-wing politics now that is backward-looking? Um, and, and, and does that also relate to its orientation to imperialism, being often, this is true of Trump, it's true of the Pen, um, much more isolationist, it's true of some of the Brexiteers that I know all, much more isolationist than uh, ambitiously global in its thinking. Is there a shift from optimism to pessimism? Um, so in terms of the question, I mean, there's a number of different issues here. Number one, there's the question of uh, utopianism uh, on the right. Um, now, again, this comes back to the question of uh, at what stage of development um, does this um, utopian ideology pers uh, persist? Because if you, if you think about uh, uh, an organization, not an organization, but a, a contagion like QAnon, um, whoever was manipulating that, and it does seem to have been sort of far-right entrepreneurs uh, involved in the social industry uh, at various levels, but uh, whoever was manipulating that, certainly there. Uh, if you read the QAnon bestsellers, um, and they, they are bestsellers, some of them, um, they combine a very strange kind of uh, sort of almost pseudo-leftist discourse um, in the sort of mold of uh, 90s alt culture, you know, in the mold of um, the, the elites don't care about us uh, and we would not be divided by greed and racism if it wasn't for those terrible elites, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, that builds up to the idea that we're going to have a day of reckoning. Uh, there's going to be a storm. There's going to be an awakening. There's going to be a coup. Um, Trump is going to round up political enemies in the streets, he's going to execute them in the streets, he's going to send them to Guantanamo Bay, uh, he's going to have Hillary Clinton strung up, 
um, and uh, we will purge the world of evil forever. We'll purge the world of all the child molesting Satan worshippers who have been turning us against one another. So I think you can talk in that sense about a kind of utopian thinking, although it uh, doesn't have um, anything like the um, ideological sort of cultivatedness, uh, the preparedness that, say, Volkish nationalism with its uh, various roots uh, did have in 1920s and 1930s Germany. Um, so that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is I don't buy that this is purely a backward-looking movement. I mean, of course, its demographics suggest that there's an attempt to conserve something, to ward off something. I mean, that, that is inherent in um, you know the, the, the conservative element of being on the far right. Um, but a big part of its appeal, wherever you look, Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, uh, Duterte, wherever you look, it's an appeal to uh, an uh, ideal of aggressive developmentalism, capitalist developmentalism, throwing off the shackles of political correctness, of human rights legislation, of all these enfeebling liberal bourgeois ideas that stop people from achieving what they can achieve. Um, and of course, you know, in, in that context, the culture wars over coronavirus and social distancing and the sort of social Darwinist uh, ethic, a part of that makes perfect sense. So um, it's it's not about um, uh, sort of restoring uh, a pristine past. And quite often, if you look at, I mean, just take Trump. He's not trying to restore 1950s whiteness. I think this is a big mistake that liberals make, that he's trying to restore, you know, it's a sort of 1950s gender norms um, and um, uh, sort of racial norms and sexual norms and so on. Uh, you know, to the contrary, um, He's trying to create a new kind of racial project, one which is capable of cutting across in different ways um, sort of various uh, uh, traditionally constituted racial constituencies in the United States. Obviously, they, they went hard for a certain section of the Latino vote. Um, but he did, you know, they, they targeted um, a certain section of black voters. Um, and... Um, Obviously, in, in, in terms of his sexual politics, although Trump passed transphobic legislation, he didn't try and turn the clock back on, say, homosexuality, um, even though he's sort of strongly reliant upon the white evangelical vote. Um, it sort of feels like there's uh, an attempt to generate new forms of race making and new forms of uh, sexual politics, which are rooted in particularly contemporary forms of crisis. And the way to understand those contemporary forms of crisis, particularly as regards sexuality, is to look at um, the sexual politics of the MRAs, of the incel forums, and the ways in which those are rooted not in uh, the idea per se that uh, these red women um, you know, like the, these Rosa Luxembourgs are going to come and tear down patriarchal authority and destroy uh, our families. But in the idea that we've lost our fathers um, and because of that, we can't get laid.
you know, this is essentially the idea of the MRAs and the incel forums that, uh, you know, the, the father figure doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that because the father figure doesn't exist anymore, there's a free for all, there's sexual competition and uh, only a small handful of very fit, attractive men seems to be getting off with all these women, leaving the rest of these poor, lonely men, uh, you know, to wither and die. And so there's a kind of... Um, uh, obviously, that lends itself to a kind of apocalyptic uh, uh, ideology as well. But there's a kind of sense that uh, some new form of um, uh, distributive justice has to be imposed, uh, you know, and obviously organized along uh, ex extremely sexist uh, gendered lines, but some form of distributive justice with regard to sex, as if that was even possible. But this is not the sort of problem that they faced in 1930s Germany. Um, if anything, whereas the problem today is that there's been a, a collapse, I mean, I'm overstating this, but a decline in uh, libido. There's been, uh, you know, obviously surveys are picking up that younger people are less interested in sex. They're having it less often. They're dating less often, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if this is worthy of a moral panic, but it is a trend. And it's one that's um, affecting different groups of people uh, differently. And the MRAs, I suspect, are partly a response to that. Um, in 1920s and 1930s Germany, uh, to the contrary, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the problem was to... Uh, roll back sexual repression um, to, you know, I mean, this was, um, if you look at Dagmar Herzog's work on uh, sexuality in the Third Reich and, you know, among uh, interwar fascists, you find it again and again that there's this dual process of sexual liberalization on the one hand, um, for Aryans, as it were, um, and of course, new sexual restrictions um, and indeed, uh, you know, murderous sexual restrictions uh, for anybody not uh, belonging to that national community. But um, so it wasn't, um, whereas uh, the, the struggle now apparently on the far right is to have some new form of prohibition that uh, institutes some form of scarcity, some form of distributive justice. Um, in the 1920s and 1930s, um, particularly in regard to the Third Reich, the idea seemed to be to, uh, to roll back uh, inherited religious prohibitions um, and to encourage uh, people, particularly young people, to have lots and lots of sex. Um, you know, strength through, strength through joy was the slogan, but it was essentially a slogan of racial supremacy. It was the slogan of uh, the, the sexual pleasure that Aryans were entitled to. So in other words, what I'm saying is that um, there is a sense in which um, we underestimate the modernizing uh, or at least the forward-looking uh, components of this new far right. One other thing, um, in regard to uh, the question of you know whether or not uh, the uh, we're seeing a decline in political violence uh, on the streets. I expect we're talking about street violence here. Um, certainly, we uh, it's it's um, it's an open question with regard to police violence, but I understand it's uh, declined from say the era of Jim Crow. But um, one thing that I thought was quite interesting about the insurrectionists. Um, the so-called insurrectionists, um, was that the majority of them were not vets. The majority of them were not members of militias. The majority of them were not um, traditional supporters of the far right. Um, they were people who had, you know, whereas the typical sort of lone wolf fascist in the 2000s would have been a sort of younger, unemployed male. 
um, these guys were disproportionately um, affluent professionals or business owners who had suffered a, a drastic decline in their fortunes probably since 2008, the credit crunch, etc., and uh, who uh, basically were threatened with being hurled back into the status of ordinary humanity, struggling humanity, just like the rest of us, and didn't take to it well. And so uh, they had become radicalized over the years to the point where through various, you know, online vectors. Obviously, QAnon was one of them, various militias. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the new militias are being organized as Facebook groups in the first place, etc. cetera, um, that they were radicalized into the idea that uh, they, through their efforts, were sufficient to overthrow um, uh, this, um, what they regarded as an elite, uh, a clique, um, a plot of uh, Satan worshippers, etc. Um, and uh, if only a few thousand of them turned up with guns um, uh, and plenty of ammo and uh, plastic handcuffs, they would uh, be able to overthrow this political power. Obviously, that kind of voluntarism um, uh, doesn't speak well of their um, you know, political experience or anything like that. But this brings me to the final point that I want to make and see if I can link this back to some of what you said. I think a lot of what's been happening, wherever you're talking, uh, you know, um, Brazil, the Philippines, uh, the United States, um, you know, various uh, European countries, uh, etc. Um, you're talking about, I think, an experimental phase in far-right politics. In other words, um, they don't quite know what they can get away with yet. And when they take office, again, it's a pedagogical process. They don't quite know what they're able to do with office because they haven't been in power in this way for a long, long time. Um, my sort of thinking on this uh, is somewhat informed by the strategy of the French uh, Front National. Um, uh, you know, uh, when they essentially decided that in order to mainstream, they would have to give up the sort of themes and slogans that were associated with um, the Third Reich and, you know, the Patain period and so on, and would have to win the trust of the bourgeoisie. They would have to win the trust of the capital's cross, show that they were capable of governing, um, and, you know, sort, sort of uh, win allies within the media. In other words, um, that only through uh, ex experiencing periods in office would they be able to start to push at the boundaries and uh, find ways in which they could uh, accelerate what we're calling fascization. Um, obviously, Trump, Bolsonaro, etc., are nowhere near as programmatic as this. Uh, I think insofar as Trump can be called a fascist, if you want to call him that, it's largely sort of instinctual, it's unconscious. Um, but there's a sense in which uh, they are experimenting with the mainstreaming of uh, far right ideas uh, and with the mainstreaming of political violence on the streets. Um, and I think that that um, process um, sort of explains um, some of what we've been seeing, the, the unevenness that we've been, we've been seeing, both their weaknesses and their surprising uh, popular resilience, the ways in which they seem able to ride out crises that might have been terminal for any other administration. Um, sorry, again, uh, that's a, a little bit uh, sprawling and confused. Um, Annie, I, I see that you have your hand up.
Thanks so much, Richard. No, no, that's really interesting. And I, um, I feel bad, but I kind of want to pivot. Um, and one of the other themes that we had discussed also, just thinking about, um, well, I guess it connects. Um, so in two ways. Firstly, you mentioned a little while, a little while ago about um, Trump crossing lines in terms of bourgeois civility. Um, and it's making me think about a kind of caesarean account of fascism as simply sort of colonial procedures being applied to Europe. Um, and if we think about the contrast of the like overt knowable in the Western sphere, um, racism, racial science of the Nazi regime of like European fascisms, counterposed with the bourgeois civility of the imperial project of or the, the project of empire, whilst also masking unknown uh, or uh, kind of untold horrors and violence. Um, and so that's got me thinking about how um, that contrast seems to continue, right, uh, between the kind of neoliberal form, which is happy to continue to sponsor the rise of the far right across the kind of global periphery, is happy to continue with imperialist aggression, um, at the same time as positioning it, positioning itself in opposition to the um, incivility of, of Trump. Um, and I wonder if that also gets at the heart of something deeper in our politics uh, or our moment um, about the elevation of the rhetoric or the elevation of rhetoric over action um, and the significance of these new languages of um, uh, linguistic violences or kind of... Um, 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 discursive violences over the continued existence of <laughs> gross exploitation um, across the world. Um, so that's one side of the question. The other side of the question, um, I really kind of want to draw out um, this analysis that I kind of um, hinted at at the beginning from George Jackson. We're talking about the role of carcerality in the carceral state. Um, I guess we're in a moment in which Rhetorically, we've got, um, well, I guess this is a good example. Rhetorically, we've got all of the trappings of a radicalizing um, abolitionist movement, um, of the spread of abolitionist ideas. That's also happening at a time in which one of the first things Biden does is license hundreds of millions for the police in order to kind of um, train themselves, right? And so thinking about how, as discursively we move towards revolutionary frames um, in whatever kind of staccato, um, patchy way that is, but also we also seem to materially in terms of the orientation of the state to us um, be moving further and further away from the actual realization of those aims. And so what is this relationship between rhetoric and action? I don't know. Um, I'll go to Nikhil first, just because I'm thinking about this question of policing and I've seen you. <laughs> You're muted. Uh, we're, I, I, thanks. Um, I think we're, we've had this um, rebellion, you know, against the police. And we've had um, efforts over many years, which developed during the Trump administration, or really going back to Ferguson in 2014, of, um, of attempting to make institutional changes at the heart of the punitive apparatus with the election of 
um, these progressive district attorneys. And one can one can one can ask a question about the viability of that strategy. But people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Chase Boudin in San Francisco and Kim Fox in Chicago and many many who have been uh, elected on a on a criminal justice reform platform. So. Um, which includes ending prosecutions for misdemeanors, nonviolent offenses, drug offenses, um, ending the, the, the use of cash bail uh, so that people aren't held uh, in prison, um, uh, attempting to already begin a process of um, using non-police kind of civilian um, intervention in, in different kinds of situations, for example, like domestic conflict situations and so forth, all of which is part of a much more detailed and comprehensive effort to rethink what public safety could look like without the police without the centrality of police, without the centrality of punishment, without the centrality of prison. Um, now, this is, this is obviously a very rich um, social movement. It's a rich set of intellectual discussions. It's a rich politics. You know, and in a country where 77 million people have arrest records and when, where one in 50 people is under criminal state supervision, it's an extraordinary struggle. You know, and it and it and it really is significant, um, and it has gained um, a tremendous impetus in the last ten years. But I would also say that we're in the midst of a pretty rapidly developing counter movement, a sense that this has already gone far enough. Uh, they weren't able to throw Larry Krasner out of office, but they tried to, and the Democratic Party did not support him. Uh, there's a move. There's been a movement to recall some of these prosecutors in other cities. Um, there, um, the Supreme Court is rattling off decision after decision that continues to uphold the most punitive elements of the uh, of the uh, of the punishment regime that we have developed over the last thirty years. Um, the, the 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 talk now is of um, crime rising. Um, there's the potential that the, that New York City could could elect. Um, a, a tough on crime mayor. I don't know if it will happen, but this is going to be an interesting test. Uh, if Eric Adams is elected, he's a African American, you know, former policeman who's very, very pro police um, and believes we need more police, and maybe even believes we should bring back stop and frisk. I'm not sure. He wouldn't go as far as to say that, but he's been attacking some of the other candidates for being um, e either soft on crime or. Um, in favor of defunding the police or disarming the police, which suggests that he thinks it's a winning political issue in this moment. In New York City, where we had massive protests uh, a year ago against police violence. So there's something about this situation right now that's very much in, in flux. And it's, to me, to my thinking, it's really a battle between the left and the liberal center. Um, I don't know where the right is in this discussion right now. You know, at least in New York City, it's not clear where the right is. Um, I think the right, uh, in some ways, rode into the kind of hegemonic phase of power in, uh, under Reaganism uh, with a very with a war on crime, essentially. Um, but the war on crime is not does not have the same kind of traction right now um, that one thinks it might it might have, even though even though crime rates and homicide rates in particular have spiked. So to me, that's a, that suggests something about the success 
um, of the left, of Black Lives Matter, of the kind of movements of the last decade um, to really change the conversation about criminal punishment. Um, to me, that is really where the center of gravity of any serious anti-fascist politics really occurs. And, it, and, and, and in a sense, it really is an anti-fascist politics that isn't only directed at the far right. It really is directed at the liberal institutional center that has uh, built this carceral apparatus of this kind of monstrous scale. Um, but the question of what you now do if you're going to really decarcerate, if you're really going to stop locking people up, if you're really going to stop governing the poor through crime control, um, it, it remains to be seen. And sort of this is where I'm thrown back to, to sort of Richard's point about the, the inchoate fascism, which is to say it, it is experimental, but I think it's experimental in a very disordered way. Um, and the disorderliness of it is, is sort of it's a, it's an open field, um, and how it how it coalesces. I think it's more. I probably think it's more inchoate than Richard does. But how it coalesces is going to really depend on the kind of conditions, right? So, for example, um, will there be the possibility for um, the 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 GOP to? Uh, once again, peel back the suburban liberals who suddenly got a, conscien a, a conscience and a consciousness around racial justice, um, if crime spikes to certain levels, um, or if there's a sort of sense that, uh, oh no, the left has gone too far uh, with all of this critical race theory stuff, which is really what they're trying to do right now. They're trying to use it as a kind of wedge issue to win the next election. I mean, that's really how how race politics works in the United States electorally. It's about the edges of these coalitions and how you can peel them off, right? And right now, racial justice politics has really worked to, to, to for the Democratic Party. But just as I think in some ways the fascist sort of commitments are thin on the right, the racial justice commitments are very thin on the liberal center. You know, and I think that the, 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 the aim ultimately... Um, of, of restoring some kind of durable mode of governance, right? Um, which I think is unlikely to succeed on the part of either party, um, is very likely to go back to some of the more familiar themes, you know? And I think the, the, the more familiar themes really are the themes of, of you know, of law and order, um, of, of fiscal discipline, um, you know, of um, of making sure people are are um, are are are, um, are disciplined to work. So labor discipline. Um, you know, twenty three states have ended their unemployment benefits prematurely, even though the federal government is is um, is uh, is offering this money. They they clearly don't think they're going to be punished electorally for it by their own citizens. You know, so there's a lot of like that kind of rightward movement. That I wouldn't characterize as fascist. I would actually characterize as sort of part of the mix of American politics that we've been fighting, you know, for the last generation. Um, and 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 I find that that's where my my own attention is drawn when I think about, say, an upcoming election for mayor in New York City, or the kind of work I do with the the prison authorities in in, in my own my own work with people coming out of prison. So so it's a it's, you know, it's sometimes I, I feel mismatched with, this, with the discussion because those, those tend to be the, the, the kind of 
the grounds of my my own concerns, you know. And I think there are more opportunities to push that pol- the politics that I believe in from the left. And it's also true, of course, that I live in a particular kind of liberal city where the presence of the far right is not as as visible, you know. And a lot of this is geographically incredibly uneven, of course, um, in a country as vast as the United States. Um, but that's, I guess, my best effort to, to sort of answer that question. And let me just throw one more thing into the mix here, which is part of that sort of the, the sort of recomposition of traditional, uh, I would say, conservative or conservative leaning authority. And that really relates to U.S. foreign policy, you know, and and, you know, the one place where you secure bipartisanship right now in the United States is around a kind of more aggressive posture towards China. Um how that is going to develop in the coming years is going to be very, very significant, you know. And and the thing the thing about Trump there is is also so weird when you think about it because although Trump definitely believed in a kind of aggressive and militaristic foreign policy, um, you know, the assassination of Soleimani was uh, was a you know was was a kind of example of that, you know, of, uh, breaking the norm, you know, but the, the, those norms were already broken in some sense by, by George W. Bush. And in other ways, you know, Trump would say things that um, actually we should say, um, that, that the expansion of NATO is not such a great idea, um, that the United States was set on a very tr- destructive course by the, by the Clinton era expansion of NATO. Um, and that it's done a lot to sort of to sort of erode trust within a kind of um, you know kind of a global sphere where we actually need cooperation among parties who may have strong disagreements and divergences of of their interests, you know. So 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 Trump, in a certain kind of way, and again, I'm not trying to give him any kind of credit, but but he opened up positions that are not straightforwardly right-wing positions on American foreign policy. Um, and, um, and, and there again, I think the liberal center, you know, the kind of what we call the blob, you know, is much more of a danger going forward because they're much more likely to be able to assemble a kind of, um, a kind of effective anti-China policy that, um, that really ends up worsening the situation uh, at a global scale. Um, rather than sort of moving in the direction that I think we need to be be moving. So I feel like these kinds of questions are the questions that we need to be giving more air to. Um, they really are the questions maybe of, of a more mainstream uh, politics. Um, but um, but I think they're 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 very important. Um. So I want to come back on uh, some of that, but I'll, I want to start with um, uh, the first part of Annie's question, um, which had to do with, um, you know, bourgeois civility and the Syrian, um notion of fascism um, uh, as essentially the appearance within European society um, of uh, a mode of political domination that had uh, long been appearing um, in the colonial world. In other words, um, Europe's barbarism trickled back into Europe. Um, okay, well, I think there's a few things we can say about this. First of all, um, when we talk about civility, obviously there's uh, more than lexical link to the concept of civilization. 
um, bourgeois civility um, was predicated on a certain idea of civilization, um, uh, not just in the sense of, you know, developments of technology, the expansion of markets, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff, but crucially, the regulation of human beings, their sexuality, their habits, their mores, their emotions and their emotional expressions, and the ways in which that, that was fused to um, uh, an idea of nationhood. Um, George Moss is probably the best author um, on this subject and the ways in which um, uh, sort of emerging uh, molded subjects were linked to um, uh, their, their sort of idea of nationhood um, in the sort of, uh, particularly in the 19th century and early 20th century. So, um, when we talk about civilization um, and the sort of rupture with bourgeois civility, um, I think we're not just talking about, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump saying horrible things about a disabled journalist uh, or, you know, um, being let off the leash uh, to talk about grabbing pussies or whatever it happens to be. Um, I think that whether it's Duterte, uh, whether it's Modi, uh, whether it's Bolsonaro, whether it's Trump, the coarsening of Moors, the barbarizing of Moors is uh, a deliberate strategy um, to sort of mainstream violence. Um, in other words, to reorganize political violence. And the way in which I would interpret this is if you um, if you understand if, if you want to, a sort of radicalized version of civilization and discontents, Freud uh, is concerned mainly, obviously, with um, the ways in which civilization limits us in terms of our erotic fulfillment and, you know, in terms of um, uh, uh, our sort of uh, our aggressive enjoyments. But there's, there, there's a much more um, consistent uh, burden of civilization, and that's work. And it's extraordinary that Freud doesn't really talk about this, but work um, is the major source of stress. It's the major uh, source of deprivation of leisure and uh, enjoyment and relief and so on. Um, it saps your uh, libido, if you want to talk in those terms. Um, work is uh, unevenly distributed, of course, and its burdens are definitely unevenly distributed. So when you think about um, how civilization organizes work, you also have to think about the way it organizes compensations. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about the social and psychological wage, um, which, uh, you know, was particularly available to vicious whites who, you know, would have make a lynching a holiday, uh, you know, essentially. Um, well, you know, the compensations of being incorporated into uh, the capitalist nation state um, with its uh, colonial um, uh, annexations and so on, uh, were frequently, frequently took the form of license. In other words, you're being repressed on every other front, but when you, um, if you want to uh, oppress somebody, if you want to persecute somebody, there are a group of people that you're free to persecute. Um, and obviously, uh, the civilizing work of social movements um, of anti-racist movements, of gay rights movements, and so on, have put severe limitations on those kind of compensations. So you can, uh, you know, you can imagine that uh, no matter how far you were down the ladder um, in terms of uh, work and terms of the class system, you could at least be assured that you were not at the bottom uh, if you were able to persecute somebody else. 
And by and large, uh, if you want to look at where resentful nationalism is coming up today, this is the, the sort of academic term. Um, and I would say that it's the sort of area in which uh, Inkowit fascism is thriving. Um, it's emerging among not just, of course, you know, I mean, this isn't just organized along axes of whiteness and gender and all the rest of it, but particularly among those uh, elements of the, um, well, they would say, you know, uh, um, sort of lower income groups who aren't quite at the bottom, because those who are at the bottom are more or less immune to this form of um, resentful national politics. But it's people who are not quite at the bottom, who are some, uh, somewhat above there, um, and who are most threatened with uh, downward social mobility. Now, if you take the neoliberal era and what that does to people, um, on the one hand, uh, it by increasing inequality by to such a considerable measure and in, increasing it across the social hierarchy so that the inequalities between those in the middle and those at the bottom increase as well, um, you increase the risks of downward social mobility. You make it much more threatening, much more perilous. On the other hand, of course, if you then uh, introduce a morality, uh, uh, you know, as neoliberalism does, which essentially says... There is no such thing as the public interest. There's no such thing as society in the traditional sense that you've understood it. Anybody who starts talking to you about society and the social interest and the public interest is hoodwinking you. Uh, they're engaging in power maximizing strategies. So the only thing that you can do is really uh, is sub submit yourself to this higher power, which is the market. And you can never understand it. Um, but you also have to submit yourself to the law of competition, universal competition. And you never know who's going to stab you in the back. So it's a, a, an organization, a, a regime of generalized paranoia. You have to be paranoid about everybody. The social industry, you know, I talk about this in connection with the social industry, but the social industry just radicalizes this sort of tendency that's already afoot in neoliberalism. So when we talk about sociophobia, its uh, substrate is intense social paranoia and anomie. So... Um, in that sense, you know, the burdens of civilization um, are, you know, are likely to manifest in ideological terms. Um, and Adam Kotzko has a book about this, which I think is very good, uh, in terms of demons. There are, you know, there are demons everywhere. Um, this brings me to a point that um, uh, Nikhil brought up earlier, which is that these morbid symptoms aren't just appearing on the right. And I think that's a very important and telling point. Um, this sort of generalization of antagonism, of threat exaggeration, etc., um, has been has appeared on the left as well. Yeah. So it's not a specifically fascistic tendency. And what I would say about that is that, of course, that's true. Um, but that indeed, one of the things about fascism historically is that when it does congeal when it does pass into a more solid state, um, one of the first things that happens is that a lot of people who've never uh, voted for the right before suddenly flock to the right. Um, that, uh, the, you know, people who would traditionally have considered themselves as being on the left um, migrate to, to fascism. And I think that this probably tells us uh, something about uh, the, the, the sort of fascistic potential, the fact that you're on the left doesn't inherently mean 
that you're inoculated against this potential. Um, insofar as it's something that's rooted in civilization or rather the dialectic of civilization and decivilization. Um, and uh, so what I would say uh, in concluding there, therefore, is that what, what the um, sort of uh, militia movements, uh, the uh, BJP, um, the RSS, um, the sort of paramilitaries in Brazil um, and various uh, incipient uh, organizations, the far right, etc. What they all seem to offer is a renewed form of consolation. Um, in other words, they offer a cure for pervasive depression and social desolation in the form of a new victimization. Um, you know, Modi talks about it. I mean, actually, wherever wherever these leaders come to power, they're always talking about um, uh, uh, mental and emotional uplift. They're talking about the renewal of the spirit. They're not just talking about, yes, they're talking about capitalist growth. They're talking about uh, uh, saving the nation from its enemies, yada, yada. But crucially, they're talking to um, very, very intensely depressed people um, uh, and offering um, them a cure in the form of whatever you're going through, you're much, much better than this group of people, be it, say, Muslims in India or, you know, uh, migrants in the United States or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so I think that that uh, is a compensation um, that is much more potent than anything that's offered by the neoliberal happiness industry. Um, and it's much more, and it's, by the way, it's, uh, I think I have to stress in concluding that this is a material interest. We tend to think of material interests, uh, you know, in the tradition of gas and water socialism. You offer people bread, you offer people a bit more money, you offer people nationalized utilities. That certainly counts for something, but so does your happiness on a day-to-day -day level. And the fact that the far-right social industry uh, and the fact that far-right celebrities and the fact that far-right um, incitement campaigns are so addictive, despite apparently terrifying people and telling people that a disaster is coming, suggests that uh, it's a highly engaging, animating, um, and ultimately for those people, um, and to that extent, um, mentally ameliorating process. Um, I think that that's um, where bourgeois civility and decivility comes in. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, basically this is a radicalized version of civilization and its discontents that I'm offering here as an analysis. I just want to kind of follow up with one um, additional thing on that, because I think it's, um, it's a really interesting point. And I'm also thinking about some of your other work, especially in the torturing machine, but just thinking about how much of this is grounded in the absolute alienation of finding community and essence online um, and the way in which we're engaging in a democratic or kind of, uh, sorry, the like general kind of political community. And I'm thinking about um, early critics of Prevent who weren't coming, who were coming mostly from the centre and centre-right, um, who are pointing out that all of the evidence suggests that radicalization at the moment is happening in internet chat rooms across the political spectrum, um, in internet chat rooms where people are lonely and isolated. And so how much of the absolute alienation of the online space is kind of playing a part in this generalized depression? 
Um, and it's um, oh, oh, go on, Richard. Oh well, I mean, we are we are over time, but you know, we're the conversation is very good. So uh, so go on, Richard, and then we'll wrap up. I'll be very brief then. Um, all, all I wanted to say in response to that is that I think that um, if you look at someone like Breivik, what Breivik um, sort of found and what a lot of these lone wolf fascists find uh, is that in these fora, they are legends. Even though, you know, they're completely anonymized, um, sorry, um, they um, adopt the persona um, of uh, sort of computer game legends and they're talked about or talk about themselves as if they are uh, sort of highly important uh, mythical historical figures. Um, I don't think that the alienation begins in these chat rooms. I think that the alienation is already pervasive, utterly pervasive, and that the chat rooms, uh, or rather the social industry more generally, offers a cure that um, in a sense makes it a lot, lot worse um, because it offers you a kind of emotional compensation um, uh, which ultimately is not satisfying. Um, anyway, I'll leave it there. I think that's a fantastic place to end uh, what's been a great conversation. Not a happy place to end it, but an appropriately dispiriting one, because one of the important differences between any language of fascism now and the early 20th century is that politics now comes out of neoliberalism, comes out of the end of history, comes out of the despair at the impossibility of uh, revolutionary political transformation, whereas politics in the 1930s um, uh, in Europe came at moments of, uh, of all kinds of uh, radical and bold political projects. And you've both brought out that degree to which uh, the radical right today attempts to give people languages of hope attentive to the utter alienation and desolation of previous projects of hope. Lots of very interesting questions we had in the in the chat that we didn't have time to get to, like someone asking, what about the religious right? You know, that theme of the Bush years, when everyone talked about the Bible Belt and evangelicals, utterly replaced in the Trump years by the image of the Rust Belt worker, who doubtless will not now fade in, and a different image will, will arise in 10 years' time as the key demographic matters. Um, but of course, the image of the Bible Belt was the image of a believer, uh, not the image as in the current right of a kind of total cynic, someone who says, I'm voting for Trump, the corrupt billionaire, because I know he's a corrupt billionaire, but I don't really believe there's anything except that swamp. So the only person who might drain it is at least the person who offends all of the other swamp dwellers. And that kind of um, uh, end of history pessimism, I think, uh, indexes the challenge of the left, which is how we offer a kind of politics that uh, believes in the possibility of transformation after the right, at least, uh, has uh, acknowledged the difficulty uh, in our movement of, of thinking the possibility of transformation and has come up with a nasty uh, form. So um, we've raised so many interesting and important things in this discussion. Just that point about alienation, both Nikhil and Richard raised uh, Wendy Brown talking about sociopathy. Uh, it's an important part of Richard's essay in the upcoming uh, issue of Salvage, where he says, you might expect an old-fashioned fascism to react to public with all sorts of authoritarian lockdowns. People like Agamben and some Podians had similar fears. But actually, the far-right reaction to public has been this kind of uh, uh, alienated individuality that says we don't want any uh, forms of state repression. Um, so there's obviously something distinctive um, there to engage with. Um, do look, everyone, at Richard's essay in Salvage Number 10 when it comes out. It's currently being edited. Um, it's got so many fantastic essays and works of art and poetry in there as well. 
Um, and I just wanted to thank Richard and Nikhil and Annie and Haymarket Books and uh, the team at Salvage and John who's doing our technical work very valiantly. Um, and just wanted to thank everyone for joining this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.